Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strader. Please be sure to like, follow, subscribe, all of those good things at anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S. We're talking about books today here at African American Conservatives. I homeschooled my children, as most people know, um, and it was really hard for me to find quality books. So I never thought here in 2022, we would be on the precipice that we are currently finding ourselves, where parents are standing up for quality literature in schools, where we are seeing parents labeled as domestic terrorists just for going to school board meetings and saying, we don't want our kids exposed to pornography in books. And if you see some of the books that are out there, when my daughter was, I think she was in sixth grade, maybe seventh grade, I looked at the book lists for seventh graders. And there was a book that was, um, listed on that list for seventh graders about a high schooler. So again, worlds apart. I mean, when you were in middle school, could you really relate to kids that were in high school? But okay, so middle school list um, about a high schooler who um, he had gotten his girlfriend pregnant and they were having discussions about whether to keep this baby or whether to abort this baby. And like for a middle schooler who doesn't even know what sex is, to have this emotionally charged, really difficult stuff um, that had no business being on a list for seventh graders. And now if you look at the list for seventh, I mean, there is just, I mean, it's like an illustrated how-to manual for some of the most, I mean, what's really weird to me, and I've had this conversation with DK, and I've had this conversation with my husband, who's the other third of African-American conservatives. And we talked about like when we were in school, I don't think any of us even knew the sexuality of our teachers. I mean, I, I think maybe in third grade, one of my teachers, Mrs. Beckman, so I knew she was married, Mrs. Beckman, but that's about all I knew about her. I didn't know anything else about, you know, uh, but now we know about polyamory. We know about everything. When I got to high school, I did have a teacher. This was in the very early 80s, very um, beginning of the AIDS uh, epidemic. And I was living in San Francisco at the time. Um, and so, you know, there were a lot of people. My high school was located near the Castro district, which is kind of the Mecca uh, for the gay community. And so I, I did have one teacher who was out and said that, you know, he was a member of the gay men's chorus and that kind of thing. That was about as much as I knew about what was going on behind closed doors for my teachers. But now we want little tiny kids to talk about their sexuality and tell us what their pronouns are. And, you know, as much as I will probably never interview Bill Maher, um, and as much as we are on completely different trajectories, one interesting thing that I heard him say was, you know, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a pirate. Thankfully, my kid, my parents never took me for eye removal surgery or removed my leg so I could have a peg leg. Um, and, and, but we see parents now capitulating to these things. And my heart is really breaking because here in Texas, 
there's a case if you haven't heard about it. Uh, Jeff Younger, um, who has a uh, son, James Younger, who for years he's been battling with his ex-wife um, to transition this child. She believes his name is Luna and that he wants to be a girl, um, despite filmed evidence that this child is a boy and does not want to be a girl. Um, and now because my former home state and my former governor, Gavin Newsom, in California, has a sanctuary for trans kids. Um, these are kids, like I said, when when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a professional ice skater. I wanted to be a ballerina. I wanted to be a number of things. You know, I'm not a professional uh, ballerina. I'm, I did dance for a little while, but not professionally in any stretch of the imagination. I don't ice skate anymore. I don't think I've put skates on for, I don't know, decades. Um, so those, what I'm saying is what you want to be at four and five and six um, is not always what you end up being. Now, I I will talk a little bit with our guest today about how what my kids wanted to do when they were little, they actually have stuck with that path. Um, but, you know, they, they kind of changed a little bit back and forth a few times before they, they really fixed on that and went back to that. Um, and so if we allowed kids to be what they uh, say that they are at those ages, why don't we just allow them to drink? Why don't we allow them to drive? Why don't we allow them to get married? Why don't we allow them to have guns and, and all of these kinds of things? Because that's not sustainable. It's not supportable. They're young. Their brains are not fixed until they're 25. They're still growing. They're still developing. So why would we say, oh, okay, well, you're two years old. You say, you think you're a boy. Let me go get you puberty blockers. Um, and these have long-term effects. And we're going to be talking about some of those things over the next few, week with, few weeks with some of our guests. But um, just the literature that our kids are reading are filled with these kinds of tropes where, you know, it's, it's glamorizing some of this. And if you look at, at comic books, DK is really big into comic books and um, just some of the, the, the tropes that are, that are in these, I mean, every single superhero now um, is gay, lesbian, transgender um, is gender fluid, some kind of something. Um, and, and it's like how much percent of the population. So why can't we have, uh, you know, a Christian superhero, that'll probably never happen. Um, you know, uh, straight superheroes, is that a bad thing? I mean, there are still straight people in the world, are there not? I'm one of them. I'll have been married uh, 33 years uh, in a couple months here. So yes, there are still straight people in this world. So I, I don't understand why we don't get affirmed and, and, and that's bad. And we've got to search for all of these other uh, diversity type things, uh, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion kind of quotas, if you will. Um, and that's one of the reasons why at African-American conservatives, we've always kind of had some issues with affirmative action because it's quotas and not merit and not who's the best and who's the smartest and who's the brightest. Um, and you can say that there are some inequities there, but there aren't any inequities there anymore. Um, who has been denied admission to a university because of the color of their skin? Who's been denied uh, inclusion in a universe, uh, university because of their ability or disability. So, you know, that doesn't exist anymore. So again, we're going to talk about books this uh, week with our guest, Richard Paul Evans, and so glad that you're here. Stay tuned for the conversation. One series that I stumbled across several years ago was the Michael Vay series written by today's guest, Richard Paul Evans. He joined us here on the show exactly 
nine years ago this month uh, when my kids were 15, 12, and nine uh, after the publication of book three, Battle of the Ampere. He is one of the most engaging authors on social media. And when he announced on his Facebook page last year that there would be Michael Vay 8, I was over the moon. So uh, the Acons podcast was still on hiatus. So I had no expectations that I would be able to interview him again. But now with our podcast reboot, not to be confused with a Taylor Ridley reboot. See what I did there, Maniacs? Uh, we now can say that we have Richard Paul Evans here with us today to talk about Michael Vay 8, The Parasite. And we're going to take a peek at the trailer right now. Hey, it's me, Michael. Michael Vay. <laughs> I hope you haven't forgotten me. There's a lot of things I'd like to forget. Three weeks ago, I was sitting in my college business class, bored. Now I'm back in the jungle fighting for my life. Didn't see that coming. I thought once we took care of Hatch and the Elgin, all our problems were over. But now Jack is missing and someone kidnapped Tara and Abby. I want to show you something. We saw this video. Yo, do you see that? Do you not see that right there? Oh my god. It looks like that kid was moving faster than sound. When we took out the Elgin, there were other things using the Elgin. Living inside of it like a parasite. I'm starting to think that there might be worse things than Dr. Hatch. When Richard was 29 years old, he wrote a Christmas book for his two young daughters. That book changed his life when it became a bestseller. Since then, Richard has become a full-time writer and has written more than 35 New York Times bestselling novels, and several of his books have been made into movies. Richard is currently writing several books a year but is especially excited about Michael Vay, a young adult series about a teenager with electric powers. When he isn't writing, Richard loves to spend time with his family at his ranch in Southern Utah, uh, where he paintballs, drives four wheelers, and makes the world's best crepes. I also heard something about our grandmother's recipe for some cookies. We could talk about that. Uh, welcome back to the show. It's so great to be here. Thank you. It's nice to be back. <laughs> uh, as mentioned, it's been nine years since you were last here on the show. Um, I had, and I, I had, had brown hair back then, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I had hoped that my kids might contribute questions because last time they did, they were in the interview and they, they came up with some questions for you. Um, but in the blink of an eye, they've grown um, and they're at work as we record this. So although they were pretty stoked that you were my guest, uh, they, uh, are, are not with us. But speaking of time getting away from us, um, without giving away any spoilers, time has passed in the series too. And we catch up with the Electric Clan um, and see where their passions have taken them. 
as I'm seeing with my kids. My oldest at the time uh, wanted to be a video game designer. And at the age of 20, he got his Bachelor of Science degree. And voila, he is a game designer with an educational software company. My daughter wanted to be a veterinarian. She just finished her certification as a veterinary assistant. She is working today at the clinic. Um, and so it was interesting to catch up with the Electric Clan and see where they are now and see, you know, kind of where they were and 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 seeing that trajectory kind of go and, and where they are with their passions. So um, that's a long setup for a question. But one of the things that I noticed in this particular book um, was more devoted to the parents than we had seen in previous books, maybe book seven, but um, more of, of all of the parents together. And it seems to me that one of the emergent themes was that struggle that we as parents go through in transitioning, letting go as they become older and make some of their own decisions as fully functioning adults. As a father and grandfather who recently celebrated a milestone birthday um, and has a successful daughter in her own right, Jenna, with her own series, and we'll get to that also, am I just being sentimental or is that a bit intentional? Well, it's actually more pragmatic in the sense of it's a normal life. And so it's almost like if you, when you see like child stars, they kind of peak too early and and they lose that um, kind of familial world they're, they're in. So they're coming back from the, all these adventures and now they're back in a, in a, the real world. So they're, Michael's living with his parents uh, going to college and trying to catch up on all the things he left behind when he started out with the electric club. And so um, one of the things that was always has always been a big part of the book is is family. Um, I remember a teacher with the first book, Michael Bay, she said something. She was one of the first readers. We did these test readers. And that's when we knew the book had just gone off the charts. Um, she had she had the best participation in, in 18 years of teaching. And she said, you know, the strangest thing about this book is he, lo he loves his mother. And I go, why is that strange? It's like mm -hmm. it's a, no one ever says they love their mother. There's always there's always a disconnect. It's like, no, Michael loves his mother, and it's a healthy relationship. And um, they're just in a very unhealthy world. So it, it, the parents do come back in. Um, of course, for um, for readers who have, people who are new to the series now and read, we won't give any spoilers. And so there's a reason that some of the parents aren't involved early on. I started out our last interview asking you about the absolute dearth of quality uh, young adult books and the absolute filth that's oh. making its way into books for our children. It's only gotten worse since then. Uh, parents are actually being labeled domestic terrorists for challenging this material at school board meetings. What is the solution in your view? Well, I, I think this. I think the solution, on one level, is success. I mean, I'm seeing censorship in publishing I've, I've never seen before. I've been doing this for for almost thirty years, and um, people are literally coming out and saying you can't write things. Like I wrote, um, I wrote a children's book that is coming out next year. Um, I took it to my publisher, and it's called "My Son Lives in a Tree." And I was told that um, they rejected the book. And now bear in mind, I've sold 35 million copies of my books. And it's like they rejected one of my books. And they said it was racist. I said, how in the world is this racist? 
it's about it's about my son. It's it's about a very personal experience that I had put into a fun book. It was uh, when my son was in the hospital, and I was talking about a father missing his son, and they said, "Well, you can't talk about children and um, monkeys because it's offensive to the black community." And I said, "That don't even try to explain it. That's the most racist thing I've ever heard." And um, I was talking to, to a black friend of mine. And I said, is this, am I crazy? I mean, it's like, am I off somewhere? And she goes, who said that? And I, she said, are they white or black? I said, white. She goes, yeah, go figure. Because that's, uh, they're telling us what's, what's, what's correct and what's not. And we're sick of it. Um, so, I mean, I don't know how you respond to that. It's a very sweet story to share with you. But when the radio show host, Glenn Beck, heard me, um, I said, let me tell you this story. And I gave it. He actually started to cry. And that's people's response because it was when my son was in the hospital, I wrote this beautiful poem for him. And um, he, I said, my publisher won't take it because they say it's racist. And he's, I know he, he didn't, I didn't have to say it. They won't take it. He said, let me guess. They think it's racist. And at that point he said, can I publish your book? And so we're just waiting for the right time to bring it out. But it's a really beautiful story about a parent's love for, for a child. And it's just, it's, it's just gone crazy. That is so bizarre. I could tell you here from African-American conservatives, that's not racist. I mean, I have seen some interesting things in books um, where it's written from a protagonist point of view who is Caucasian. And a lot of times they will um, mention the race of people who are not Caucasian. Um, and that's a little puzzling to me sometimes when I see that. Um, but I, monkeys i mean monkeys exist why and, well, and monkeys actually play a role in this particular I, book so yeah. i mean i mean it's a cute story it's about i take yeah. zoo and my son is mistaken as a monkey and they lock him in a cage and the father goes every day to see his son and hopes they'll let his son out um and so it, it's it's you know it's cute how many of us call our kids monkeys you little monkey you know yeah and it's just cute and it's, it's like so my my agent started to explain it to me and I said oh no 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 don't I I am not going to drink your Kool Aid I mean that's just you're 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 past the level of insanity well you have the Acon stamp of approval so <laughs> you go ahead and tell them that okay, thank you. Uh, now your antagonists offer up some frighteningly frighteningly prescient soliloquies in the Vey series. Well Patch in book five, uh, when he's talking to Quentin um, in Storm of Lightning. And in book eight, uh, we're provided with some astute observances of world cultures. And I can't talk about this specific scene because that'll give some spoilers away, but you, I think, probably know who I'm talking about. Uh, and there's a lot in there about victimology and there's a lot in there about... Um, how to take over the world, if you will. Um, and it all talks about, uh, you know, how we uh, dummy down history and those kinds of things. And so uh, these observations by your characters remind us how important it is to be a student of the world and to know our history. Do you agree? I, absolutely. That's, I mean, when I looked at this, when I'm writing the series, I thought, first of all, I, I want a, a villain who is not ordinary. But I kind of looked at him, and I'm a Christian. I thought, I'm going to look at him as Satan. So I made him very charming, and I made him very smart. It's He's very clever about how, you know, every now and then he'll share these bits of what it takes to take over the world. And so I actually looked at it. I thought, if I was going to take over the world, what would I do? And that's how I wrote the book. Wow. 
And that's one of the things that I, I have to say I really appreciate about you is that this series, although it's not overtly religious, I mean, you could certainly find some tropes in there if you were looking, um, but I, I love how clean it is. It doesn't have any agenda really other than good wins, bad loses, you know, uh, might take a while, might take a few books, but eventually, you know, things sort of even out, you know, it's that back and forth, which is life. You know, there are some bad things that happened to us. There's some good things that happened to us, but we've read the end of the book and I'm talking about the Bible. We know that God wins. Um, but this is such a, a wholesome, clean series. And um, that was what I was telling parents when I first got really, uh, hooked on this series was just how absolutely there's, there's no woke agenda. There's, there's nothing. And I have to say, um, we talked about another series the last time that you were here and we were talking about how the movie very much differed from the book in this particular author series. And I actually abandoned that series, um, in the second set of five books because there was this whole, uh, same sex attraction thing that went on. And there were some other, themes that I just don't think are appropriate. I mean, part of it is a Christian worldview, but part of it is just kids don't need to be involved in some of these discussions. They don't need to be exposed to some of this material, I, in, in my view. Um, and so it was disheartening. And so when I discovered Michael Vay, I was so thrilled. And so for parents out there that are like me that want to preview their children's literature beforehand. This is such a clean series. I mean, there's nothing in here really that's that you could object to. Uh, that was, you know, that was my goal. I mean, I, my adult books are that way. Um, I wanted, my books are inspirational. I hope my books will lift people, will raise their, their inspiration and frequency and love and compassion. And um, I wanted to show with my, I wanted to do that with Michael but also to face true evil. And so it, there's a line in there once when his mother says to Michael, he says, you know, they don't follow you because of your power. They follow you because of your heart. They know, they trust you. And um, I think that's a really good point. I think, I, I think most of the weaknesses in the, in the world aren't a matter of failures of politics. I think they're failures of the heart. You know, when we have, when we have true compassion for each other, when we love each other, um, these things, tend to take care of themselves and that's why we see so many good things happen on a local level as opposed to on a on a federal level that um because when you're down on the ground and working with people like i've been working with abused children for more than 25 years and um it's a really beautiful thing to be a part of and to see an impact with children who are going through so much and um, when you're there, it's like you don't care about how much money you give. You don't care about how much time you give. It's like you just want to help. And I think most people do have that in their hearts when given the opportunity. When you legislate it, that's when you start running into, many times run into problems. So anyway, so the, Michael Vey is about, is about love. It is about um, good versus, versus evil. And sometimes the gray areas of that, that um, sometimes these choices are hard. And um, it's also about courage. And so in the face of difficulty and hardship about doing the right thing. And that's that's what I wanted to do. Now, it did get, Maria, it got a little bit harder with this book because they're getting older. And it's like yeah. your college. So I started to get some negative reviews like, well, there's no sex. Um, that would be natural at this age. And it's like, because they're in college. And it's like, yeah, it would be probably in, in the world. But um, I'm just, 
I'm just not that interested in, in writing about it. I mean, they can, there's plenty of other writers who will take care of that for you if that's what you want. That's absolutely right. Now, during our last interview, we discussed that prior to Michael Vay, most of your success had been found in uh, writing for adults. And I asked if after the initial run of seven books, and now that's at least 10, uh, according to your Facebook Live, that there's an eight, nine, and 10. And of course, if you read eight, you know that there's a nine. It has to be but, right. And that's, that's the most, I'm sorry. It better be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but after uh, 10, if you might uh, consider another series for young adults, and you said that I should ask you in five years, so it's been nine now. <laughs> Is there another series housed within you waiting to be told? Right now, I would say no. Um, I I was a little bit surprised that I came back and did Michael Bay. There are really two reasons. One, the president of Simon & Schuster Global called me and he goes, why are you not writing Michael Bay? It sold millions of copies. It continues to spread. It's, it sells every week. It's 11 years old and it's still selling like crazy. And uh, why wouldn't you just write Michael Bay? I mean, especially even over your adult books. And I said, because I'm tired. Um, and I've, you know, I wrote these seven books. I've been writing two books a year. I'm exhausted and it's been seven years. I want to have a life. And so um, he said, well, I, I hope you would think about it. And I, th I think COVID did a lot of that. Um, you know, I was, um, I miss the kids. You know, our, on book seven, we had a book, our first book signing, we had almost 4,000 kids came. It was massive. And um, it was a lot of fun. And so I, I miss writing for kids. I miss their letters. I, I miss their enthusiasm. And um, the truth is every day for the last um my gosh, for the last three years, we get kids asking for me to keep writing. I mean, every single day, multiple, it's just kind of nonstop. So, um, you know, it kind of, it's like, you know, there's still more story there and there's still more to explore, but I'm going to have to just see, see where it goes because Carrie and I are pretty much empty nesters now. Our kids off doing their thing. And um, I've spent a lot of time in, in a way promoting books and um, I'm getting older. Like you said, I had, I turned 60 last week. and and so. I want to spend a little more time at home and with her. You know, well, happy belated birthday. My husband also reached that milestone this year. So I, I understand 62 was a good year. Um, but, you know, um, I I was so excited, as I said, when I found out that there would be a book 10. <laughs> um, but, you know, th there's this, there's a part of me, as I, as I said, I was rereading the whole series in preparation for our chat today. And I got really sad thinking about, well, when I finish, it's going to be done. And then, you know, it wasn't. But book 10, you know, it's at some point this is going to end. Uh, and that's the hardest thing when you grow so fond of these characters. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it was really great to catch up with them again and see what they're doing. Just like, you know, I said there's a parallel between my kids. I feel so close okay. to them because I feel like I watched them grow up. But, you know, at some point you know, we're going to see that, that end. So that's going to be hard. I've got to brace myself now. <laughs> well, I, and I love that. I, I love it when I hear from readers that I was so disappointed when the series is over because it's like, I, I felt like I lost someone um, in my life. And that, that's a good thing, you know, to have these relationships with people um, and fictional or not, it's a way that we connect with each other. Yes. So it will be sad. It'll be sad for me as a writer. Um, when I, I remember when I finished number seven, I was I was really depressed, actually. It's like, wow, I'm going to miss these kids. And as a writer, they live in my head. 
and hearing them talk to each other and joke with each other. And um, I know it sounds a little, little crazy, but it's like, I think you have to be a little bit crazy to be an author, to have <laughs> a little bit of that going on. Um, and so I, 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 I was truly sad. And there are books I finished that at the end of, I'm just sad. It's like, well, it's done. Now let's share it with the world. And hopefully they feel the same connection. The series, though not set in Texas, seems to have more than a passing familiarity. I mean, Austin is named after Austin. Uh, and uh, Torchies, that was interesting to see because I didn't think that folks outside of Texas really knew about Torchies uh, and the Fort Worth, uh, Fort Worth stockyards. What's your connection to the Lone Star State? And, and might we see you sometime soon, whether it's at a book signing or at Glenn Beck's Mercury uh, Arts Compound? Um, I have a lot of connection with Texas, but the biggest reason is there is because my daughter um, is a student at TCU and she's getting her doctorate. She's finishing up this December. So I'll be back there in December 15th for her graduation. I'm very proud of her. She's a nurse anesthetist, which is like one of your characters without giving exactly, away I, any. I based it on my daughter, Allison. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I mean, the program is just the most intense thing I've ever seen. It's uh, one, one nurse that tests anesthetist anesthetist is hard to say um he said that 62 percent of his class fell out or dropped out wow and uh, there are a few times i flew to texas just to be with my daughter because she was on the brink it's like i am getting up at four in the morning i, I studied 90 hours a week it's like this is insane and so she's just finishing up her residency i'm so proud of her she's she's a tough she's a tough young lady and um I'm just proud of her. So anyway, that's why I put it. I love TCU. I, I love the horned frogs. They're talking about it. And um, at one point, Carrie and I um, talked about actually moving to Texas. And that was a possibility. Yes, do it, do it. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Well, the problem is we have grandchildren here. But if they, if they moved, and, and I also have my ranch in southern Utah, which is my favorite place in the world. Um, if something happened to my wife, I'd probably just move to my ranch and become a rancher. I, I, I mean, seriously, I just, there's something about that life that just so appeals to me. Is the Christmas ranch maybe based on that a little bit? It's totally based on it. Okay. All right. I, I just, moved to miles. It's actually called Timepiece Ranch, but in, as you know, in book five, I destroyed Timepiece Ranch. So I did Christmas Ranch. Um, I had to move some of the mile markers off so people wouldn't come looking for me to maintain my <laughs> privacy. But otherwise, it's um, identical. And so I actually had someone come through and they were huge Michael Bay fans. And um, I said, do you want to see where it happened? It's like, I want to see the water tower. I want to see where Michael and Taylor were. Honeybees. And I walked in, I, I go, yeah, it's based completely on here. They went through and they kept gasping. It was really cute. That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Texas, this is just a weird story. So I just have to tell you this. Uh, we moved here two years ago and we've been subjected to just absolutely insane weather. I mean, we lived through Snowmageddon yeah, last did. year. Yeah. yeah. It was right as we got here. I mean, you might have heard that in the Bay Area in California, where I used to live, um, there was an earthquake this week. Um, and people will talk to us all about the, all the time about, well, don't you miss the earthquake? No, I don't miss the earthquake. I mean, you slipped through most of them, but this was kind of a big one. But but Snowmageddon was crazy. And it was right after we moved here. And then it was Icemageddon. And then it was the hottest summer on record in, in Austin. And there was all kinds of crazy weather events. Well, just the other night, as I was reading book seven, we had the most insane thunderstorm I have ever lived through. And I'm 58. So I've lived through a lot. And this was lightning for just about an hour straight. And I mean, constant. I mean, the, it was lit up like daylight for an hour. 
pretty much with the lightning strikes. And it was just so bizarre, but it was the perfect backdrop to read the rest <laughs> of the series. It was so cool. Do, do you have that experience? Like when you're, when you see lightning storms and things like that, do you, do you think of Michael instinctively now? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially we, I had that happen in my ranch um, last, last summer, end of summer. It was bizarre. I, you, you know, those little sound machines that you play to kind of make you calm. I, I left it on and it had the sound of rain and, and it had occasional lightning. And I woke up because the house was shaking and I thought, oh, I left it on. I turned it off and it kept going. And I realized we were in the middle of the storm. I felt like we were at sea. And I went outside, opened the door and looked out there and it's just, it was bright. I could just see the whole ranch. And I, I always, it, it makes me nervous because it's like, I don't want to be that story. It's like, okay, the guy who wrote about lightning gets electrocuted. <laughs> yeah. It's like life sometimes gives us such interesting ironies. It's like, I could kind of see that happening. So um, I at least stay off the water tower during lightning. <laughs> yeah. Fair point. Now you said you were inspired to write the series for your son, Michael, who has Tourette's syndrome as, as do you, uh, my oldest and I share a cousin of sorts in OCD. Um, how is your Michael doing? And while conditions like these are challenging, are you both able to embrace the blessings that come with neurodiversity? Yeah. You know, I am so grateful. I kind of came out about Tourette's syndrome. Um, yeah. It surprised a lot of people. And um, what I found is that because there's, you know, there's more than a million kids with, with Tourette's syndrome, they're looking for role models. So I can't tell you how many parents have come out and said how grateful uh, they are. That's like, you're successful. You have a good life. You've done, you've been able to do a lot of good things in the world and, and you have Tourette's. And so I'm really, you know, when I see kids have book signings with Tourette's syndrome or it, I'm getting a lot of kids with autism, a lot. Um, and, you know, Austin's definitely on the spectrum of autism. And so I, I see a lot, I see a lot and I'm grateful for it. My son, Michael, who called me yesterday from Hanoi, Vietnam, um, he, he is doing some really cool things. You know, he's, he has struggled most of his life. And um, he said to me last year, he goes, look, my oldest, my oldest sister is an international bestselling author, Jen Evans. Well, she wrote Love and Gelato, which was the number two Netflix movie in the world. Um, huge bestseller, right? Allison's a doctor. Her, her sister McKenna's a doctor. Her, her sister Abigail. These are names you know from the book. They're my yes. Um, um, McKenna's becoming a, a pharmacist and her doctor in pharmacy. And um, Abigail has her own clothing line. And my, you know, my kid's done really well. And he goes, look at me. He goes, I'm a sushi chef. What have I done of any value? And I said, Michael, I never have looked at it that way. You've you've overcome more than your sisters have. Um, every single day you've battled, you've fought to, um, and he really has, he really has been through some hard things. And it's like, you can't measure someone's success necessarily by what they accomplish many times or how, you know, how wealthy they are, or you, you measure by their spirit. And, you know, Michael has never given up. And I, I love that. I love that young man. I love that boy. And, um, he did something really, that was really frightening. He, he has really high anxiety and, um, OCD and Tourette's and, he decided to t take it head on. And so he started to travel the world. So he first went to Europe and he was there for three months. He went everywhere from Czechoslovakia to Ireland and um, living in hostels and um, just exploring. I got, and then COVID shut it down. And uh, so when I came back out, he went over to Thailand and Vietnam and Cambodia. And it's really, it's, it's, this is a terrifying thing for most people. For him, it was off the charts. 
yes. he wanted to tackle it. And um, I'm really proud of him. I mean, he found that as a way to um, face his fears. And I think it's, and he's actually really enjoying it and finding strengths that he didn't know he had. And so I'm really proud of him. But he's, in his way, he has accomplished just as much as any of his siblings. And I'm really, I'm proud of him. You know, we don't all get the same cards. And so it's what we do with those cards. You made me really emotional with that because, um, as I said, I have OCD. My oldest has OCD. My two youngest are adopted. Um, and we talked about that last time that you were on with the uh, Christmas boxes. But um, my youngest has a cognitive delay and has struggled and, and has seen the successes of his older brother and his older sister and has had some of those same kinds of struggles uh, in terms of where do I fit in and, you know, I don't do these other things. And I shared with him exactly what you told your Michael. And I said that um, it's easy when the playing field is level, but people don't see where you started to get to the starting line that everybody else starts at. You know, they don't see all that prep work that you did and all of those things that, that I mean, he he hadn't started reading your series the last time that we spoke because he was nine and he had a cognitive delay of about five to seven years. So he didn't even start reading until he was maybe 10 or 11. Um, and so of course he's read the books now, but uh, you know, it, it's just uh, amazing. So um, I know we don't have much time left with you. I just want to, I wanted to mention that uh, your daughter, Jenna, who is an author in her own right. And uh, you, you said it, that she is uh, the author of three best-selling books, that her uh, book was Love and Gelato. I've read all three. Uh, it was made into a movie recently. Um, I did, just had one more question about the series. Um, book eight was initially going to be The Forgotten, and Austin was slated for MIT. How do these changes come about in your writing process, and why? Um, sometimes, like when I wrote my walk series, um, I'm working on the series, and it's you know it's about this man walking. I start with him walking, and it's just I can't figure out why the, the series isn't going. And I just struggled for months. I struggled with it. And one day I'm sitting in the crosswalk. I'm sitting in the car. I'm, I'm waiting for a red light. And this man walks by me in the crosswalk. And he has a backpack and um, and this kind of Australian hat. And, and all of a sudden, I, I didn't even notice him. I'm just in my own thoughts. And all of a sudden, I looked over and I thought, that looks just like my character. That could be my character, Alan Christofferson. And it's like, well, why didn't I notice him? Why was I following? It's like, because I don't know anything about him. He's just another man. And that's when I realized I'm writing the wrong book right now. And so I, that book I started was really book two miles to go. I went back and wrote The Walk, and it was a story of Alan Christopherson. And I actually started with that. You don't know me. That's the first thing. Just another book in the library. And so I, I, the first book was setting up everything. I started with The Forgotten um, and about where the kids are. And I realized that actually isn't the first book in the return. It's like, that's actually the second book. So I have a lot of the second book already done because, um, you know, third the way through it, I just stopped and or fourth the way through it, I stopped and um, started at a different timeline, different place. So when you're, when you're writing this, sometimes you, you can't really see what's inside the house until you get in there and start opening the doors and checking closets and, you know, walking around it. And that's the way it is writing. So, um, you know, I think I know what it is. And then it turns out I, it's like, no, it's, it's there. That's just not yet. 
So that's why things, you know, books aren't always the way that you think they're going to be. Now you have a pretty robust Facebook fan page, and I have to admit I follow <laughs> pretty closely. Uh, and you mentioned that you traveled to South America for research on the book, and you shared yeah. <laughs> an anecdote about a frog. Um, and I was the fan that asked you if it was going to end up in the book, and it's not in eight, but might we see it in nine or ten? No, I don't know. I'd rather forget about it. And <laughs> I mean, it was midnight. I'm walking. We're in the jungle. We are deep in the jungle. I mean, it, we're just someone built this little hotel in the middle of the jungle. So you see the water going, you know, going to the Amazon. It's just like I'm walking up there at midnight and this big frog jumps on my head. I'm on a third story. And it's like, if you want to get if you want to get freaked out at midnight, have something that big in the jungle jump on you. <laughs> like, what is this? So, um, but yeah, I didn't. It was funny. I was I was locked away trying to meet this deadline I'd given myself, and so I'm locked away in a hotel room. And I realized I'm not feeling it. I need to go to the Amazon jungle. I need to put myself in there. And so I call my wife. I go, Carrie. Um, she goes, Are you coming home? Are you ready? I go, Nah. I just booked a flight to the Amazon jungle <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> to go to the Amazon. I go, Yeah, I have to. And I really didn't want to. It was kind of miserable, actually. Um, I'd been there twice before. And, but I got what I needed. You know, we, we went deep. Yes, you did. On and I found exactly what we needed to got the right pictures. It was tough traveling with um, COVID because uh, they had, Peru had more deaths per capita than anywhere else in the world. Wow. And so I was constantly getting tested before I got on a flight. I, I got my guide was, was really mixed up, you know, sitting around for 16 hours with no food. And it was pretty, it was kind of not, it wasn't fun, but that's what I do, you know, to make my books real. And so like the zoo that is in book eight, that's a real place. Oh, wow. So I went in there and it's like, okay, if I owned a zoo like this and I want to turn it into something, how would I do it? And so I'm really glad I went. Well, that's really cool. Hey, Marie, if, oh, go ahead. Oh, before we finish, can I, can I tell you about uh, my book that's coming out soon? Yes. Okay, that this, was my next question. That was my lead in. So let me, let me ask that. We'll edit that out and we'll. Okay. Go ahead. Um, so if you're just joining us, our guest this segment has been Richard Paul Evans. Read this book. Of the uh, author of the best-selling Michael Bay series. How can we continue to follow your work and what's next for you? Well, I'm really, I'm really excited um, about a book I have coming out. For those who have followed me at all, my first book was called The Christmas Box. That's what started my career. It sold 8 million copies. For five weeks, it was the biggest book in the world. It was number one in the New York Times. It was on the list for almost 46 weeks. Yeah, almost a year. It was crazy. Um, and But that was a long time ago. I was I was 30 years old when I wrote that. And so um, every now and then magic happens. I always work hard on my books. But this year something happened. I, I got really sick last year and in December. In fact, I, I got pneumonia. And then um, as sick as I was, I caught COVID on top of that. I had a friend who had the same thing at the time and he died. Um, he was my age and he passed away from the same thing. And, and we were trying to get worried. I mean, I mean, it was like going to the hospital. I was in bed 20 hours a day. And in the midst of this, this book starts coming to me and I couldn't not write it. I'm laying in bed, can barely move. And I just start scribbling down this book. And it was about my childhood. And it was about a man I used to visit next door named Mr. Foster. Now, you would never let a young boy visit an old man next door. Um, but it was also Mr. Foster is a black man. And um, 
it was about this beautiful relationship between this young man, this young boy, boy and this wise older man. And um, when I started to get well again, I thought, I'll go read what I wrote, see if it's any good. And I couldn't stop sobbing when I read it. It's like, this may be the best thing I've ever written. The book is called A Christmas Memory. I've already had a movie offer on it. I turned it down. I think it's going to be a very big book. It has the highest pre-orders of any of my book in history. Um, it's already just, I mean, internally it's exploding. And the people who have read it have responded um, just like they did with the Christmas box, which again went on to be the biggest book in the world for five weeks and sold millions of copies. So I'm really excited about it. It's, I think it's, it answers some really important questions. Um, like I said, the, most of the big issues really are about failures of the heart that we face. And, um, you know, how this wise old man nurtures and cares for this little boy in a very hard time in their life. And my wife, it's the one book my wife, when she read, it was really hard for her to read because she knew how much of it was true. That most of it was true. And you said, you know, people have people have misconceptions. My publisher, I, he said, I thought you like went to Harvard and were from a wealthy family. And I said... Now, we were very poor. I slept on the floor for two years. I didn't have a bedroom. Um, ten, you know, eight children and um, no, and I with Tourette syndrome and, and a mother struggling with mental illness. It, it, I had a very traumatic childhood. And writing about this, you know, and getting it out and sharing it, it's like the impact has been super powerful. So I think it's the most vulnerable book I've written. But the response so far has been off the charts. So I'm very excited about it. Um, a producer called me. He goes, why won't you sell it? And I said, because I sold my last book. They made a TV movie out of it. And the president of Paramount wanted it. It could have been the biggest movie in in the world. And instead, it was this TV movie. It was the biggest TV movie of the year in America. But it's like I wanted something bigger. And I go, I believe this book has a huge destiny. And he said, well, one of the things about it is, is the main the main character, you know, besides the little boy is a, is a black man. He goes, right now, Hollywood's really looking, you know, woke Hollywood. They're looking for strong roles for African-Americans. Mm -hmm. And um, I said, great. You know, that's great because the, the way the book deals, there's some parts in there I think are really moving because they do talk about race issues. And I mean, I remember when um, it's actually his wife, who's not in the book, but he, she said to me, she showed me something and said, this is a batting block for my grandmother from slavery. You know, she taught me things about history and um, and it was the reality is I, you know, I learned it's like, well, he's it was it never, you know, people say, well, I'm on colorblind. It's like, yeah, that's usually it's usually just political correctness. The truth was he was a man I loved. And that's all that mattered. It didn't matter. It's like, but he does make some corrections with this young man because he is a, a victim of the, you know, the culture he's raised in. So like when he sees Mr. Foster in a Santa Claus outfit, he goes, you can't be Santa Claus. He goes, why? Because I'm black? He goes, yeah, Santa Claus is white. He goes, oh, you've seen Santa Claus. You, you wow. know, you've seen him. He's like, well, he goes, what you're saying, you saw what Coca-Cola put an ad up for him. He goes, right. And, but the last thing the boy says, he goes, and this boy just found out there is no Santa Claus, this cruel teacher. This is all true. So Spoiler I'll, alert. Yeah, it's all, but it's all true. Yeah, that's good. And uh, he says to the old man, he goes, um, I wish you were Santa Claus. And he goes, how come? He goes, because I believe in you. Wow. And uh, it's it's a very, it is the most personal thing I've written. But I, I think it's a really important book. I think it's, it's, it's a small book. 
Um, I negotiated with my publisher to lower the price of the book because I think people want to share it. And that's what I'm seeing. People are buying 10, 20 copies. And the book's not out yet. The book's already sold enough copies to be a New York Times bestseller. It's, it's sold thousands and thousands of copies. It's not even out yet. So it comes wow. out November 22nd. Your books have a tendency to do that. I pre-ordered my book. It was I got it the day of. As soon as it hit midnight, it was on my Kindle. So I, but your books have have a tendency to do that. But you know something you said was really bizarre. Um, I mentioned that my husband turned sixty this year. He also had COVID last year, and he was also very sick, and he was also in the hospital. He also went and had he had pneumonia on top of everything, and he also came very close, I think. Wow. I mean, I don't know, um, to dying. Only God knows that. But he was very, very, very sick. And he told me something that sounds so crazy, but since you mentioned it, I'll talk about it. Um, he just said, you know, in in the, the pre-dawn hours, he would be there awake. And he just had like these really vivid sort of ideas about things. Um, yours resulted in a book. His resulted us in us buying our house here in Texas. Uh, but it, there were just some some things that he kind of plotted and planned and just ideas that kind of came together and some things for his business. Um, but he just had like this really vivid sort of awake, dream, dream sleep sort of state that I, I don't know that COVID seemed to heighten maybe? Well, I, I think... Um, when we are at kind of our weakest, when we're at our most vulnerable, I think then what happens, it opens up our minds and our spirits and, and we're more, um, we're more available. I mean, I remember one time I went through this really, I was trying to write a book. I was giving away all the money to charity. And, um, I thought, why God, why are you not helping with me with this book? And then I had a day that I couldn't believe it was just getting slammed after one disaster after another. And finally I was just broken and at that point, this book, entire book came to me. I wrote it. Um, it was a children's book. I wrote it in 45 minutes. A book went on to sell a half million copies. And I said, why did I have to wait to go through that? I said, you weren't listening. You were so caught up in the world um, that you weren't hearing what I was trying to tell you. And so I think that's the reality. You know, when all of a sudden everything's stripped away and, and you're looking at survival and vulnerability, all of a sudden our eyes get really clear. And we see. And so I, I exactly what your husband went through. It sounds like we had the exact same path. I, I totally understand. And because so when I came back and looked at what I had written, I couldn't believe it. It's like this is this may be the best writing. I've now written actually 40, 44 bestsellers. Wow. So and I have my first feature film coming out this year as well um, on Thanksgiving Day, starring Justin Hartley. Um, and director Charles Shire, um, The Noel Diary. is It's my first feature film. I'm very excited about it. It's very good. I've seen it. And That's awesome. So things are going, you know, God's blessings. We're doing, we're doing extremely well. My charity, The Christmas Box House, has helped more than 135,000 children, and it's growing. And now we're looking at how we can spread this to help children, um, at-risk children nationwide. And it's a beautiful thing. I'm having so much fun. And, um, you know, we're really blessed because I hated every day for the first four years. It almost bankrupted me. Carrie and I put all our money into it. It was miserable. We were fighting state, you know, and regulations and everything. Try, just try. It's like we're trying to help children. We're just trying. Obviously, not, we're not. There's nothing in it for us other than doing good because it's bankrupting us. And um, now we're at this point where it's growing and it's doing good. And I'm seeing kids grown up who have been helped through the system. And um it's a, it's a blessing. So I'm glad we persevered through those first awful years, but things are going well, you know? 
sometimes we have to um, really kind of sacrifice and suffer to do good. Again, if you're just joining us, our guest has been Richard Paul Evans, the author of the Michael Vay series, also a Christmas memory that's coming out. You'll have to come back and talk to us about that. And I hope we have a standing date with each of the books, nine and 10. Seriously. You're a a good interview. You're a lot of fun. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you. Again, it's been our pleasure to interview Richard Paul Evans. Thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a good week. Okay, so you got to see me totally fangirl out, but that's seriously, it's one of my favorite series. Let's ring DK in and see what he has to say about it. Come on in, DK. Hello. <laughs> hey. <laughs> So you're a bit of a fan, huh? A little bit, <laughs> a just little. a little bit. Well, you know, I was, I was. For those who don't know, because we've mentioned that DK and I are actually our best friends in real life, and so uh, one of the things that I was doing all through this series, particularly last night, because I had reread the whole series, and so I'm giving him updates. Okay, I'm at at 33%, I'm at 68%, I'm at 98%, and then when I got to 98%, I realized, wait a minute. This isn't going to clear up in just 2%. There's no way. So there's a book nine. And then I went back over all the the stuff that I had uh, queued up to do research. I listened to the last interview that we did with Richard Paul Evans and also um, the Facebook live that he did where he did actually, because I saw the one where he mentioned eight, but I didn't see the one where he had mentioned nine and 10, but I had figured out that there was going to be a nine because of eight. But did he find out that there's a 10? I'm so excited with that. means two more years of my life because I have to wait till next October to see it so anyway what did you think of the interview sounded exciting i mean here's a great life story um i can't wait to read a christmas memory you know it's funny that the lead character is black and as a black american african-american who's a big fan of fiction it's interesting to see um a black strong black lead without it being a race swap you know instead of making michael vay himself black um, Evans created a strong black character. And I wish there was more of that. So, I have a couple questions for you, though. Um, okay. What is it about Michael Veda you found so appealing? Tell us about him and his conflict, his environment, and and why you like him so much. I really liked it because, like I said, the dearth of children's literature. I mean, as a Christian mother, um, and even back then, there was a lot of garbage. I mean, I remember seeing on uh, my, my daughter read was reading at the college level, probably when she was in fifth or sixth grade. Um, I don't know how soon she was reading at that level because they didn't start testing it until she was in sixth grade, um, sixth or seventh. Um, so it was hard to find books that... Um, could challenge her in terms of vocabulary and those sorts of things, but that weren't so advanced in terms of emotional themes. You know what I mean? I mean, words for adults um, generally have adult themes. And so I didn't want her exposed to any of that, but I also wanted to give her, I mean, she would measure books by how thick they were, (laughs) if it was a good book or not. It was like, she would go and try to find the thickest book she could find in the library. So when I stumbled upon a good series, I mean, I was really excited about it. But Michael Vey, um, as as Richard Paul Evans mentioned, loves his mother. Um, at, at, at the first book, um, they have a very, very close relationship. And so um, being the child of a single parent, um, 
who didn't always have the best relationship with her mother. There were times when I kind of did. And as I got older and understood a little bit more about life, um, I think we were able to work a lot of things out. But just that that relationship between a mother and a child and the love that they have and kind of surviving against the world. Um, but also the fact that he was neurodiverse I and mean, the fact that he had Tourette's. Um, and I believe it mentioned that he also had ADHD. Um, or I know Richard Paul Evans has those, that, set of, um, neurodiversity and his son, um, I know he mentioned also has, um, OCD as well as the, the Tourette syndrome. So seeing characters that have, uh, that, that most in our world would consider handicaps or, um, disabilities or, um, disadvantages, um, seeing them turned into almost superpowers is so cool. And so to be able to find that kind of affirming, series for my kids who were really struggling with some of these issues at that time. So that was another takeaway. So it was a really clean book series, really strong characters, really strong family values, but also embrace the whole idea of neurodiversity. And who is Michael Vay? Michael without, Vay. Without giving too much away. Without giving too much away. I mean, it's what you could see probably in a lot of the stuff online if you Google it. But he is the leader of the Electro Clan. The Electro Clan are 17 youths, um, and I'll just leave it at that, um, wow. 17 youths that have um, electric powers. They were um, born in a hospital that had a mishap with one of the machines, and so it turns out they have electric powers, and they're different powers. Um, and so uh, they go on a series of adventures uh, all over the world. Um, and so it was really interesting to talk to Richard Paul Evans to find out that the characters are named after his kids. I didn't know that. I knew about Michael, but I didn't know about Abby and McKenna. Uh, and so it was really cool to find out uh, that they were named after characters and to find out that his daughter, uh, that one character is patterned after his daughter because um, she does attend TCU and is a, a nurse anesthetist. And so uh, it, it was interesting to interesting to see to see that. Oh, but like excellent. the Michael Vay, his Michael is traveling around the world. Michael Vay actually goes to some of these places also. Sounds excellent. All right. So you hear it. That's another episode in the books for African-American conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm Marie. I'm DK. And we'll see you next time. Be sure to follow, like, subscribe uh, to all of our content, both at brightnews.com, uh, the brightnews.com YouTube channel, and also wherever you find your favorite podcast, you can uh, look at anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S, and you will find a list of our podcast providers there. Till next time. Adios. 